Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. to see you this morning. Welcome to 2023. So glad that you're with us this morning. All right, I'm going to say a phrase. I'm going to ask you to repeat it back to me this morning. Just a little way to begin engaging one another here in the service this morning. So you listen carefully as I say it, and then we'll repeat it together here in a moment. Are you ready? Listen carefully. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers did Peter Piper pick. Did you get it? So, all right, you're gonna say it with me now? Ready, one, two, three. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers did Peter Piper pick. Faster, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. A peck of pickled peppers did Peter Piper pick. One more time, no, let's not. (laughs) Pastor, what in the world was that? Well, did it get your attention? It did, didn't it? Why, because tongue twisters or things that you're not expecting take you from somewhere out here to suddenly being extremely focused. They capture your attention. And this month, we're going to be looking in the book of Hebrews at five things that the author says makes Jesus better than all other things. Because we point you to Jesus every week. Why do we do that? It's because Jesus is better But that leads to the question of how is Jesus better? So we're going to open the book of Hebrews, take a look at these five things, and we're going to start this morning in Hebrews chapter 1 with this truth, Jesus is better than all other messages. So I'm going to read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and then I'm going to tell you why I had you do that stupid exercise with me a few seconds ago. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. All right, let me go back here to verse 1 of chapter 1. And let me uh, help bring some some, uh, larger context to what the author of Hebrews is going to talk about. This originally was written in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, in sentence number 1, there are five words that begin with the letter P. Now, they don't get translated into English, but I'm going to give you the words in a translation of my own here in a minute, and we're going to repeat them, because it's really critical to understand that the writer of Hebrews is going to open up the book by grabbing your attention by doing an alliteration thing with five P words to help you recognize what it is he's going to point to that are better than these things. So, in that first verse there, it's translated into English this way. 
In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in the Greek, it could read something like this as I translate it over into the English. In the past, God spoke to our patriarchs through the prophets at purposeful times and in a plethora of ways. That would be the way we could bring it over into English. So there's your five P words that the author uses. Past, patriarchs, prophets, purposeful, plethora. All right, you're going to say them with me now. Ready? Uh, let me do it one more time for you. Past, patriarchs, prophets, purposeful, plethora. Ready? Past, patriarchs, prophets, purposeful, plethora. All right. The author wants to help you understand that in the past, through a variety of ways, God spoke to our forefathers and he gave them his message. But in these days, the ones we live in, God has done something better. He has spoken to us through his Son. And out of that, verses 1 and 2, he's going to build his entire argument of why you can rest with confidence that Jesus is better than every other message and better than every other messenger. So in the passage here, let's take a look at what the author says are the four reasons Jesus is better than any other message. Okay, let's take a look at those. These four reasons. First, Jesus has a unique relationship to God. Now, in the past, in purposeful ways and through a plethora of ways, God spoke to his people. So let's think about some of the ways God spoke to his people in the past. Well, let's see. There's Moses, who looks up one day in the wilderness and sees a tree or a bush on fire, and he goes over to see what that was all about. So how did God speak? Through a burning bush. One day God took Moses up to Mount Sinai, and what we're going to learn in the book of Hebrews is that through the agency of angels, God gave to him the Ten Commandments. So God hid over in the rock, and Moses saw the backside of God, and the angels delivered the covenant, the Old Testament covenant. Or, remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I had a pastor in church camp who used to call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Tibet we go. And so, <laughs> so I was a little confused there for a second, sorry. <laughs> you remember the story? They get thrown into the fiery furnace, and there is somebody as, who looks like the Son of God in the fiery furnace with them, assuring them, that God had them safely protected. Uh, there are other stories like Elijah and Elisha and the prophets who have these incredible visions of God, whether they be chariots of fire that are coming from the sky or whether they be axe heads that float. In the past, God spoke to us in purposeful ways and in a plethora of ways. But now, in these days, he has spoken to us by a better way, namely, 
through his son. Now, in order to understand why that's so important, and why the writer of Hebrews emphasizes the fact that these other prophets were servants of God. They did mighty and powerful things because God empowered them to do so. They delivered incredible messages because the people of God needed to hear that. All of that incredibly powerful and amazing. But in these last days, God has spoken to us in a better way because now he has sent us his son. Now the writer of Hebrews, and we're going to look at this, and this is why your Old Testament Bible is so important. You won't understand the greatness of Jesus. You won't understand the magnificence of Jesus if you don't understand the things of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. So, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, here are the important things from the Jewish writings that Jesus does that fulfills everything that was predicted and that makes him better than all other things. And he's going to reference a lot of Hebrew scriptures or make allusion to them. And in this particular way, as he starts his book, and we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, it's almost as if God is saying, Jesus is better than the author. You don't need to know who the author is. But as he begins to write, he's going to reference Psalm 2. And in other places, he's going to reference the Psalms because the Psalms are all about Christ and all about the magnificence of his messiahship or his kingship. So in this passage, he's going to make reference to this passage that's found in Psalm 2. So let me just quickly go through this so that you understand why he references the Son. And in a moment, I'll talk to you about the importance of that idea in the mind of rulership. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. So as the author of Hebrews begins to write, he's referencing Psalms 2, and he's saying that God says to someone, today you are my son. Today you are my son. Now we know from the New Testament teaching that Jesus eternally is the second person of the triune God. But here the psalmist is saying that God, looking out over the nations of the earth in deciding to bring his kingdom of righteousness to the earth and to redeem the earth, has appointed someone to reign over the nations and that someone he has named as his son. He makes him his son. 
And what is the inheritance of the one who is called the Son of God? The people of the nations. Now this doesn't mean that this king rules over geographical boundaries of nations. What it does mean is that people in every single one of these nations have been redeemed by this king and are brought under his rulership so that the kingdom of God encompasses people from every tongue and every tribe and every language and every nation. And we get to eternity in the book of Revelation at the end. And what does it say? That before the Lamb of God, people from every tongue and tribe and nation, not just people in America, not just people of my skin color, not just people who speak English, but people from every nation, of every color, and of every language, right? This is God's plan to make the Son the king of all the nations. And that's what makes us equals in the church of Jesus Christ. There should never be one lick, ounce or drop of prejudice among God's people if Jesus Christ lives in your heart. You want to know why? Because Jesus says, God's word says, that he's a king, a son, who's given the nations as his inheritance, and everybody from every tongue, tribe, and nation gets into the kingdom of God exactly the same way. Right? You get into the kingdom by admitting Jesus is the Savior and inviting him to be your Lord, to change your life, and to forgive your sin. And that's why there is no excuse, none, for any prejudice of any kind in the church of Jesus Christ. And if you have prejudice in your heart towards someone, you need to get on your knees and repent of that prejudice. It's sin against the God who said he would save people from every place, every tribe, and every nation. Now I want to hear an amen. All right. You're a soapbox there, preacher. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm just tired. If there's any place in the world where prejudice should not exist, it's within the church of Jesus Christ. So there, we said it. <laughs> now, what's so important about him being the son? Why does God make that such an important point? Here's why. Because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is both the Lord and the heir over creation. In verses 2, 3, and 4 there, he says... God now has spoken to us by his son, this king whom he has appointed, Psalm 2. And this son is the heir. Now, I don't know if you follow pop culture, but I'm not like the keenest guy on, on tabloid journalism and all this uh, fixation on Harry and Meghan, you know, I know it's out there. I know I see them trying to give their side of the story as to why they left the court and all of that. But Harry wrote a book recently. And you know what the title of the book is called? The Heir and the Spare. You see, he's not in line to the throne, is he? His brother, Philip, is in line to take over for King Charles. Why? Because in... Places where kings rule, historically, who is the heir to the throne? The firstborn son. 
You know how many times Jesus is called the firstborn? How many times Jesus is, is called the firstborn among many brothers? How often the idea that Jesus is the heir? What's the heir mean? The heir means he gets to sit on the throne. He is the heir. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, in the past, God sent his servants to minister to us, but now he sent us a son, and this son is the king, he's the heir over all creation. That's one of the reasons why Jesus is better than every other messenger. Every other messenger is just a servant of God. Jesus is the son of God, he is the heir. And Christian, take heart. This same word, heir, is used of you. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it's used three or four other times. Let me just show you. In the last day, he's spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things. See that? He appointed Jesus heir of all things. Who gets to be the heir? The son. Today, I have named you my son, and now you are the heir of all things. That's awesome, isn't it? Jesus is the heir. But now look at what it says about us in relationship to Jesus. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? The word inherit that you see on the screen is a derivative of the word heir. In other words, in the mind of the author and in God's mind, Jesus Christ is the heir who inherits the throne but all of those who have taken the king as their own will one day rule with him. They are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, as Paul says in the Bible. But take a look in Hebrews 6. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. God not only made Jesus better than everyone else, but he also has a plan for all of those who trust in Jesus so that they, with Jesus, share in the joys and in the reign of Jesus. That's you, that's me, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. You're an heir of God, a joint heir of Jesus Christ. You're not a spare. You're not a spare part to God. You are an heir of God. If you've come to know Christ as your Savior, you put your trust and your faith in him, Jesus is better than anything else because Jesus makes you a joint heir with him in the promises and in the reign of Christ himself over the, all that God has created. What are you going to be doing in eternity? What are you going to be doing? Sitting on a cloud playing a harp? No, probably not. You are going to be part of the government of Jesus Christ. You know how our government runs? It has its branches and it has its employees and it has all kinds of responsibilities that make the government run. In eternity, God says that you are going to be reigning as part of the government of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's a verse in there that says one of the things that Christians are going to do is judge angels. You say, wow, we, that's what? We're going to do what? Yeah, it says in there that Christians, one day in eternity, reigning with Christ, are going to judge angels. Well, what kind of assignments are you going to have for eternity? You're going to have assignments that help Jesus reign age after age after age after age. 
throughout all of eternity. And the sufferings that you've experienced now, the pain and the heartache that you've experienced now, the purposelessness of this life that so often comes against us and we wonder why in the world do these things happen, all of that's eliminated someday when you sit and reign with Jesus Christ over a purposeful, redeemed creation that makes sense and that is righteous and that rules the will of God through the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you are going to be a part of that. Look at what Hebrews 9 says. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that's the same word, inheritance. Inherit, heir. Who is going to receive the promised eternal inheritance? You are. Jesus died as a ransom to set you free from sin that were committed because of the law. And in setting you free, making you an heir of the promises of God. You're not just going to be doing nothing in eternity, sitting around being bored. You are going to be a part of God's regime that rules over the righteous kingdom that Jesus has brought into fruition because of his faithfulness to obey God, even to death on the cross. There was a lot riding on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Not only his own, uh, his own bringing salvation to you and me, but the restoration of the entire universe, both physical and spiritual, rested at the cross. And when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging God to try to find another way, he says, nevertheless, not my will but yours. And it says his sweat was like drops of blood. That's how much pressure was on him. He had to carry it out. Why? Because today, God has spoken to us through his son. He's better than all other messages because he is the heir. And his heir includes you being a joint heir. It wasn't just his inheritance on the line. It was yours. There was a ton of stuff resting on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus Christ that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he cried out, it is finished at the cross, it not, only made that your, it not only meant that your debt was paid in full, it meant that your inheritance was secured forever. Should you not give the Lord Jesus Christ praise for what he accomplished as the heir of God who made you a joint heir with him? It also says in the passage, in that first Hebrews 1 passage, that Jesus is the Lord of all creation because he is the one who created it. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll see that there are verses in there that say God created everything, and there are other verses in there that say Jesus created everything. So I have a question for you. Who created everything, God or Jesus? Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> well, how does that work exactly, Pastor? Well, here's the best analogy I can give you. If you were to go out and you bought a piece of property, and you wanted to create a unique home, you would go find an architect, wouldn't you? And, that, and you would tell that architect, I want you to design a home that's unique, that fits the specifications that I have, and design it for me. And that architect would get out the blueprints, and using his mind, his gifts, and all of his power and ability, he would draw out for you the dream of your home. And he can say in his resume, I built that house over there. And it's true. On paper, he built it. 
He designed it. It was his ideas to put it all down there. But there's another person who has to be involved called a contractor, right? Like the architect, at least the architects I've worked with in building projects for churches that I've been involved with, they never come out and actually get down in the ditch that they're digging for the footer. They come out and they stand at the edge of the ditch with their, with their little measure to make sure, and, and then they maybe go over and they test the concrete to see that it's... But you know what? There's a guy like down in the ditch who's actually been digging it out, and there's a foreman who actually owns the company that he works for who's contracting it to get it done. God architected the universe, and Jesus carried it out. So when it says God built the universe, he did. He designed it. And when it says Jesus built the universe, he did. He actually is the one who carried out the plan of the Father. So when the author of Hebrews says Jesus is better, he's saying Jesus is not only better because he's the heir, he's better because he's the contractor who built it all. So why is Jesus better? He's better for these reasons. He is the son named king. He is the heir of the creation. In fact, he is the Lord over all creation. Now, here's what I want you to to think about for a moment. As the Lord of the creation, Jesus Christ could have demanded that this creation serve him. But having given mankind dignity to make a choice, and mankind chose poorly, God did not appoint Jesus to sit on the throne just because he was the heir. He appointed Jesus to sit on the throne because Jesus obeyed God and went to the cross to provide redemption so that your king, the king you love and serve, is not a king who's made his kingdom on force because he's more powerful than you. No, no. He's made his kingdom on love because he died for you and invites you to himself of your own free will. And see, he rules then not only as the king who has the power of bringing creation into existence, he rules because his love for you doesn't force you to receive him, but his actions prove that he loves you, and because he loves us first, we love him in return, right? Your king sits on the throne because he won your love. Right? Right? Aren't you like, you're always glad like when the guy you vote for gets in? And you're never glad when the guy you didn't vote for, the guy you didn't vote for gets in? Right? Well, guess what? The one you chose is in. And he won your vote by his love for you, didn't he? That day when, when Jesus offered himself and said, I am the one that you need. And you looked at him and you said, what are your credentials to sit on the throne of throne of king of kings and lord of lords? And he could have said, because I am the one who made it all. But he didn't say that. What he said was, I'm the one who loved you all. I'm the one who died to show you I love you. And I invite you to have me as your king, not because I can force you into it, but because I want to love you into it. Don't you want to serve that kind of king? A king who wins you to himself because he sacrificed the last drop of his holy blood. 
And that's the third reason that the author talks about here, that Jesus made purification for sins. At Calvary, shedding his blood, taking, as it were, his own blood and presenting it at the throne of God as an appropriate and final sacrifice for sins. And so the author says there in verse 3, having made purification for sins. The priest would make purification for sins annually. And they would go into the Ark of the Covenant, and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, in the most holy place, the high priest would go once a year. Just once a year. And it was so holy and so sacred that they would tie a rope around his leg and bells on his, his robes so that they could hear him moving around so that they knew that God hadn't struck him dead. And they tied a rope around his leg so that if God did strike him dead, they could haul his dead body out from underneath the curtain where God had stricken him dead. That's how holy that place was. That's how fearful a place it was. And once a year, the high priest would go into that area and with the, with, uh, with the blood of an animal, he would take the blood and sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, he made purification for sins on the Day of Atonement for the entire nation and people of God in Israel. Now, the Bible says, and it's going to build it out later in Hebrews, but the author grabbing our attention says, he made purification for sins. How did he do that? He took his own blood as the sacrifice to the very temple of God, in the very presence of God, and in the heavenly sprinkled his blood as a permanent purification of sins. So that the author of Hebrews will tell us later, his offering is better because it's permanent. Having made purification for our sins is why he's better. You see, Moses and Elijah and Daniel and Elisha and all of the prophets, no matter how powerful they were and no matter what they accomplished, they still had to regularly bring temporary sacrifices to the temple and their sins weren't permanently forgiven because there wasn't a permanent sacrifice that had yet been made. Remember Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? And Peter sees him and says, we should make three temples here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And you know what were Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus about? They were talking to Jesus about his upcoming death. You want to know why? Because they were in heaven on credit. Their debt had only temporarily been paid. They needed a permanent payment for their sin. And they knew that Jesus Christ was going to make that. Elijah, the man who was raptured to heaven by a chariot of fire. Moses, the man who died and God buried. Proof that both the dead who die and go to heaven and those who get raptured and go to heaven are both real, both are known, and both need the work of Jesus Christ. Now, he made that sacrifice for sins, and having made that sacrifice for sins... What did he do? After he provided this purification, he, what? Sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this last picture of why Jesus is better is a cultural picture taken from the very Hebrew culture in which Jesus grew up. 
when you went to a place where there was a banquet and where people were seated and the host brought you into his chambers to, to uh, throw a party or to honor people or to celebrate, there was an order of importance where you sat at the table. So if you remember the story of the Last Supper and Jesus and the disciples, the most important place at the table that night at the Last Supper was occupied by Judas Iscariot. He sat in the most important seat. Sitting next to Jesus on the other side was the Apostle John, and across the table in the worst seat or the lowest seat was the Apostle Peter. So apparently Judas thought he was that important that he sat at the very most important spot. And one of the things we learned uh, on a trip Tammy and I took uh, this past year was that when you went into these tables, where you were seated mattered. The most important guest was considered the guest of honor, and he was seated by the host at a particular place. Now the Bible says that Jesus Christ sat down where? At the right hand of God. What is that? That's the most important place. And when he sits down, he sits down because his work is done. Right? The priest, when they're in the temple making sacrifices, don't sit down. They move around from place to place. They do their incense. They do their offerings. They light their candles. They don't sit. So when he says that Jesus Christ sat down, he's saying, the Son of God, having accomplished his work of purification now had the right and the ability to rest from his labor as the Savior because his work was now complete. And that's why, having made purification for sins, he could sit down at God's right hand. There's nobody else seated at the right hand of God but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is there now. And now, instead of acting as our Savior in that seat, he acts as our high priest. He made a sacrifice that was permanent. He offered the sacrifice as the priest. And now he's praying for you and me until the day he returns to come and rule over the world. Why is Jesus better than any other message or messenger? One, because he alone is the Son of God. Two, because he alone is the heir and the Lord. Three, because he alone made a permanent purification for sin. And four, because he alone had the right and the ability to be seated at God's right hand. That's why we're thrilled with Jesus. That's why we talk about Jesus. That's why we offer you Jesus. That's why our whole church ministry is built around Jesus. Because Jesus is better than superior to and greater than any other thing, including any other message and any other messenger. And so the author says in verse 4, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is greater. And Jesus Christ is superior to all other messages and messengers. In the past, to the patriarchs, through the prophets, purposefully 
and in a plethora of ways God spoke. But today, he has spoken in a better way to you and me through his son. Don't miss the importance of what God is saying to you today. The Lord Jesus, the most important person in the entire universe, loves you, wants you, and invites you to become a part of his ruling family. Let's close in prayer. Now, it may be that you've never come to know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're wondering what's the right message to believe. And the argument of this particular author in the Bible is, Jesus is better than all of these things. You know, in life there's good, there's better, and there's best. And Jesus is better than all of these things because he is the best. He is the only sinless one. He is the only Lord of glory. He is the only Savior. There is only one name given among men by which we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus. And so we point you to Jesus today. We'll be pointing you to Jesus during the month of January and why he's better. And as you sit there, if you've never really made a commitment to Jesus, maybe today is the day you want to say yes to him for the first time. And if it is, there's a card in your seat. Pull that card out and write on there, I've said yes to Jesus. And someone on our staff will get in touch with you to help you fully embrace what that means. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. And if Jesus is the best thing, if he's better than all other things, then, dear friend, I invite you to come to Christ. Don't trust your own works. Trust his. Don't trust your own plan. Trust his. Don't trust the religions of the world whose leaders remain in the grave. Trust the one who founded our faith, who on the third day after his death came up out of the grave, promising you not only forgiveness of sin, but the conquering of death so that one day you might live forever and reign with him in a new body that will never die again. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Won't you receive it today? Jesus, I pray now that as the word of God from the book of Hebrews has been spoken, that through the Holy Spirit, you'll touch our hearts and minds, draw us to the Savior. May we never, ever look away from the Savior to anything else. And may our hearts become content and satisfied because our life has been given to Christ. Save us, O oh Jesus, I pray in your name. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.